for those of you who haven't been at City Ranch or at, at Hope this summer, uh, we're in the midst of an eight-week series called The Old Testament Times, where we're looking at uh, these Old Testament stories, these, these things that a lot of us have learned, these stories that we know, uh, but so oftentimes we gloss over them and we don't know much about them at all. And so we're taking eight weeks because oftentimes in the summer at the church we, we tend to slow down, but uh, here at Lutheran Church of Hope we're deciding to heat up this summer and, and we're really pouring into the Old Testament because oftentimes uh, I think we, we overlook the Old Testament. I think oftentimes we think about Jesus, we think about we have this God who came in flesh, who, who was born, who lived, who died, who rose from the dead. And so we have this New Testament, and we focused all our time on the New Testament, which is the second half of our scriptures, which tells the story of Jesus in the early church. And there's an attitude sometimes we get, I can be guilty of it myself, where we become dismissive of the Old Testament. We don't think it holds as much weight. We don't think it holds as much importance because, hey, if we have the New Testament, if we have Jesus, then, then what do we need to know about the Old Testament anyways? And I think there are many of us who really don't have a very good understanding of what God was up to in the Old Testament. I had a seminary professor that told me one time when I made that exact claim in class, not a smart thing to do in an Old Testament class at seminary, but I told him that, well, why do we spend so much time on it? Yes, that wasn't good. But he told me, he said, Jeremy, think about it this way. Remember that the, the Bible is God's work. It's God's word to us. So, Jeremy, remember, it's 66 books long. It happens to be divided for our purposes into the Old and to the New Testament. It happens to be broken into chapters and ver- verses for our purposes. But he said, Jeremy, never forget the fact that the Bible is in itself the story of God in our midst. The story of God's, uh, God's movement in our world. He said, Jeremy, think about it this way. The Bible, yes, it's divided into two parts, but it's different than you'd think it would be. Think about Genesis 1 through 2. The story of God's creation to humans the way they were intended to be. God created humankind in his own image that they would bear the resemblance of God and they were made perfectly. As I watch musicians play, this just is just overwhelming to me because when I hear these people play music, there is no mistake in my mind that that is a gift from God. The fact that they can do what they do to me is just astounding. How beautiful it sounds, how perfect it is. There's no mystery that they were created in the image of God with a gift, with a purpose. And you and I are the same way. We have been given gifts. We've been created in the image of God, but, uh, but something happened in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, uh, well, Adam and Eve, they ate the apple. And it all went downhill from there. So the Bible, yes, it can be divided into two sections, but really it's Genesis 1 and 2, and then Genesis 3 to Revelation. You you see, our scripture, our word that we have from God is all about God's movement in this world. From Genesis 3 on, in the 60 
five books that follow is God's redemptive work in this world. That throughout Scripture, throughout the story of God, it's God's way of trying to win us back. Of God's uh, ways of, of trying to win our hearts to Him. For God to work in our midst and remind us of who God is. That we would not forget who God is and who God has created us to be. And when we become dismissive about the Old Testament, when we gloss over what has happened prior to Jesus, we miss out on so much of the valuable work that God has displayed in His Word. And so today we're looking at Daniel. Today we're looking at this man, Daniel, who lived a life where uh, it was not easy. But he lived a life that he knew he was called by God. A lot of us know the story of Daniel. Daniel was this man who lived in captivity. He was a man who had three friends. His three friends have three of the coolest names in the whole Bible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. My wife and I are having a little boy in September, and I think maybe Shadrach sounds kind of cool. I don't know if she'll go for it. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, those are the the central characters in, in this story. But really, the story in the Old Testament, this story of Daniel, is not a story about Daniel at all. Oftentimes, when we read these stories, we make these characters into heroes, We think, if only I could be like Daniel. If only I could be like Abraham and Sarah. If only I could be like Jonah. But really, these these stories aren't about those characters. They're about God. They're about God's sovereignty. They're about God's power. They're about God's movement in our world. And so today, what I want to do is take a look at the story of Daniel... Look at who Daniel was. Look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But most importantly, look at God and how God has acted in that story. When I was growing up, I was one of those fearless kids. Uh, My mom likes to claim that I never had a frown. She said, Jeremy, you woke up with a smile on your face. She said the only thing that we had to do was to figure out if that smile was going to be a devious one or a joyful one. Because you were always on the move. I was um, a little hyperactive when I was little, and I was crazy. I had a big mop of hair, and I was just a blur all day because I never sat still. My mom said, Jeremy, oftentimes people look before they jump, but Jeremy, you always jumped before you looked. It didn't matter what situation I was in, I would just launch myself into it. I had a dad who was a pastor of a large church, and so I was always around people, so I had this attitude of kind of being fearless. I just loved it. I was involved in a lot of things, and I really wasn't scared of anything at all until we took our first big road trip. Then I learned what fear was. Uh, My family and I were driving. We drove from Fargo, North Dakota, and the Johnsons never flew. To have five people in an airplane would cost way too much money, so we always drove. Everywhere we went, we drove. It didn't matter if it was 30 hours, 40 hours, we would sit in that car and drive as a family. And that was like forced family time, which I don't know how my parents made it through. I will never subject my kids to that type of punishment. We divided our back seat into lines. There's three of us. We couldn't cross the center line of each other's space. 
We were driving to California and we hit Colorado and we had to go through the Rockies. As we were driving through the Rockies, my parents were telling me about the mountains and, and, and what they were going to be like. I was super excited. I couldn't wait. I'd never seen a mountain before. I'm from Fargo. The biggest hill we have is a parking ramp. So we're going through the mountains and all of a sudden we decided, my dad decided, that we would take the scenic route. Well, the scenic route involved going through those, on those roads that um, look like they're hardly wide enough for two cars. And then kind of to make you feel uh, secure, they put these guardrails on the edge of the cliff that are like rotted out stumps with this metal that looks like it's maybe um, aluminum foil. And, and I'm thinking to myself, now, now that's going to prevent our car from falling and plummeting to our death? Impossible. And I was terrified. I, to this day, am absolutely terrified to drive in the mountains. I don't know what it is. I'm not scared of heights. I can, I can stand at the edge of a cliff and look over and not be scared one bit. My parents will tell me, Jeremy, back up. But you put me in a car when somebody else is driving, I am certain that we are going over the edge. And as I grew up, whenever we would drive through the mountains, I would literally be in the back seat with a blanket over my head, crying the entire time. To this day, if I am not behind the wheel, I cannot drive through mountains. I don't know what it is, but it's a fear of mine. I mean, it literally paralyzes me. I live in fear of that. We have fears, don't we? I mean, a lot of us, we have, uh, we have fears in our lives. We have phobias. I don't know what your phobias are, but this past week I googled common phobias, and I want to share some with you. You might be able to guess what some of these are. Acrophobia. What do you think acrophobia is? The fear of heights. Yes, the fear of heights. How many of you have the fear of heights? A common fear. Claustrophobia is the fear of small spaces. Any of you that have had to go in an MRI tube with claustrophobia think surely the world is about to end. Nyctophobia, what do you think that is? It's the fear of the dark. How? Daniel has the, do you have the fear of the dark? Yes. My sister, 36 years old, sleeps with a light on in the bathroom in their bedroom. Scared of the dark. A lot of people are scared of the dark. Ophytophobia, what do you think that one is? Snakes, who got that one? That's amazing. Are you scared of snakes? Oh. How many of you are scared of snakes? Common phobia. Arachnophobia is the fear of spiders. Trypanophobia is the fear of, anyone have this one? Needles. Needles. Astrophobia. Thunder and lightning, storms. My sister, maybe she's just fearful. When we were growing up and there would be a thunderstorm, <laughs> she would grab pillows, put them over her face because she was scared, one, that there was going to be a tornado and it was going to ruin her complexion. And she would holler out loud and say, I'm too young to die. 
I'm too young to die. She had astrophobia. Mysophobia. Any guesses? Also known as hypochondria. Fear of germs, fear of sickness. We have fears. We have enough fears, enough common fears, that we can go through a list like this and we can be pretty certain that somebody in the room will share this fear of ours. But a lot of these fears are very temporary. Uh, My fear of going on a mountainous pass only happens when I'm in a mountainous area. And growing up in Fargo, North Dakota, that was like once every decade. People who are scared of needles, you only have to deal with that when you go to the doctor. People who are scared of the dark may sleep with the nightlight. But a lot of our fears go a lot deeper than that. They're not temporary fears. They're real fears. They're those situations in life that tend to paralyze us. There's those life circumstances, those life events, well, that they tend to hold us captive. I don't know what you've come here with this morning, but I know a lot of us have arrived here this morning with pretty heavy hearts. We're approaching a doorway in life that we know we have to walk through. And we know that what lays beyond that door, what lies beyond that door is not going to be easy. And we're here in fear of the unknown. You see, the story of Daniel, yes, it's a story about uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace. It's a story of Daniel in a lion's den. Yes, it's a story of courage, but more than that, it's a story of people who had every right to be in fear, to be scared. And the story of Daniel isn't about Daniel's conquering of that fear but it's a story of a God who is bigger than. I wasn't a great math student, but there's one thing I remember about math, and it was this symbol. It was the greater than or the less than symbol. Whatever's on the open side is bigger than whatever happens to be on the closed side of that symbol. And the story of Daniel is a story about a God who is bigger than anything. The story of a God who is bigger than your fear. The story about a God who is so big, who lives throughout your fear, who will not abandon you in your fear. You see, Daniel is brought into a situation where he has every right to live in constant fear, but he knows that he has a God who is bigger than the situation he's been called to. If you have your Bible with you, we're just going to simply walk through Daniel. I encourage you to go through Daniel. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen that we're going to focus on. But I encourage you to walk through Daniel. The story of Daniel alone, we could spend the next hour and a half on. So we'll only do an hour and 15 minutes. No, I'm just kidding. It'll be like 20 more minutes. But you could spend the whole day just pouring through Daniel. Fascinating story. 
Daniel is basically written in two sections. The first six chapters of Daniel, the first six chapters are basically the life and times in Daniel. Daniel 7 through the end is all about Daniel's visions. God gave Daniel the gift of interpretations of visions so that when somebody, as Mark talked about, when somebody had a dream, Daniel could interpret it. But for today's purposes, we're just going to look at the first six chapters on the life and the times of Daniel. But in, in order to know what Daniel is living into, we need to know what's brought Daniel to this point. The map on the screen, it's, very, it's kind of hard to decipher. But this is basically the promised land. Remember, Abraham's promised a son. They have, he and Sarah have a, a son in, very, in, their, in their old age. They're promised a land that's going, to have, that's going to house their people, the Jews. And so they settle in this land. And you can kind of see a pink to the north and a, a, a salmon to the south. I don't know. I'm kind of color deficient. But you have the north, which is Israel, and the south, which is Judah. The golden years of this kingdom was before it was divided. It was in about a, the year 1000 BCE. It's the reign of David and the reign of Solomon. King David and King Solomon, they live. Life is going very well for the Jews in the promised land. In 922, about 80 years, give or take, the kingdom is divided. Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Israel throughout time uh, is constantly going through a cycle of kings, kings who are not walking in straight paths with the Lord, and so not very good things are happening. It's also important to know, you might have heard of the word Mesopotamia in your world history classes. This land here is very, very fertile. Good people wanted it, so this kingdom was under constant threat of being captured. This is the same land today that we might know as the Gaza Strip. It's interesting to know that this strip of land has been fought over for over 3,000 years. Think about the Israelis and the Palestinians, and you think about why can't they just quit fighting? It's been going on for 3,000 years. In the year 721, the North Kingdom, Israel, is overtaken by the Assyrians. It falls. Starting in about 605, the Babylonians start invading Judah. Judah, the southern kingdom, will eventually fall in 587, 586, some people will say. But in about 605, we take up the story of Daniel. And the reason why that's important is, one, we need to time and place stamp it, that you know this is an actual place. This is an actual historical account. Secular as well as Christian accounts will reference what's going on during this time. But it's also important to know that as the southern kingdom is starting to fall, the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar, he has a very, very smart way of going about this. Starting in about 605 BCE, he starts taking people captive. 
he starts invading and he goes in to Judah and he takes the best and the brightest. If you have a Bible, open up to Daniel 1. Go to 1 chapter 3. Daniel 1, Daniel chapter 1 verse 3 says, Then the king ordered Aspenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning and are gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar is smart. He knows that as Babylon comes in and takes captive Judah, the thing that's going to be important is to get the best and the brightest, the people of influence, the people of affluence, and to change them from the inside out, to strip them of their identity, to rob them, to think brainwash them out of their, out of their faith of God, their Jewish faith, and bring them into the customs of the people of Babylon. And so what Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fall into, what they walk into, is into a land where they are being threatened, where they are being forced, where they are captive. We feel captive in our fears. Those fears that we have in life, they hold us hostage. They overrun us. They paralyze us. And this is something that Daniel could relate to very well. The first thing that Nebuchadnezzar is going to do to try to assimilate these men into their culture is he's, first he's going to change their name and then he's going to do one thing that the Jewish people would never think of doing. He's going to change their diet. He's going to force them to eat foods that are unacceptable as a Jewish person to eat. In chapter 1, verse 8, you can go down. It says, But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Daniel says, we can't do this. Let us eat something else. The chief of staff of these people says, no, I've been given orders. You have to eat the food and the drink of the king. And he says, just, just give, us, give us a week. Feed us nothing but vegetables and water for a week. The chief of staff says, no way. If we do that, I'm going to get in trouble because you guys, you're going to lose your strength. We chose you because you're strong. We chose you because you're men of high ability. If we feed you nothing but vegetables and water, the king's going to get mad at us because you guys are going to be weak and you're going to be utterly useless. And Daniel says, give us a week. 
Give us a week. And, and, I, and I assure you after seven days that we will not only be as healthy, but we will be healthier than the other men that have eaten the king's food. You see, because the first thing we learned from Daniel is that God is the only thing that will sustain us. In our fear, so oftentimes we turn to things. We turn to something that's going to take it away. We turn to something that's going to uh, minimize the damage, to, to minimize the collateral damage of the thing that we're walking into when all God wants us to do is to turn to God and say, just know that I am with you. Know that I am bigger than the situation you are walking into. And what I want to ask you this morning is, what have you been turning to for sustenance? In your fear, in those difficult times in your life, what have you sought protection with? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you're seeking acceptance through what somebody else thinks of you. Maybe it's your children. Maybe you think that your happiness getting through a difficult time is ultimately going to reside in the fact and whether or not they are happy. Maybe it's an addiction. Drugs, alcohol, pornography. When life gets so difficult, you turn to these things because somehow you think it will get your mind off of what you're having to deal with, but you know that after it's all over that the problem remains. Daniel says, just give us, just give us vegetables and water because we know that we have God. We know that we have God. That God will ultimately feed us. Sure enough, after seven days, they come and they check the men out and the men are just fine. Now turn to Daniel chapter 3. Verse 26. The Jewish men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have something that's characteristically different than the Babylonians. You see, they have a monotheistic view of the world. They view, in one, they view that there is only one God. There is only one God. The God of Israel, the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, and it's God alone that they will worship. Well, there are men that are, are threatened by these, these guys who don't follow their rules, and so they issue a decree that at the sound of any, that when they make the sound, when they give the signal, that there's this golden image that everybody in the land will have to bow down to and worship. The signal goes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say, no way. We're not going to do it. So word comes to the king. There's these three guys, and they, they, they refuse to worship the golden image. You've got to do something about them. So in 326, just before that, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're thrown into a fiery furnace. The king says, turn it up ten times hotter. Get it real hot. Let's teach these people a lesson. They're going to be incinerated. They're going to be annihilated. There will be no trace of them left behind. 
so oftentimes in our lives when we're facing our fears, we're, we're certain that we are going to be consumed by them. We are certain that they are going to devour us, that they're going to annihilate us, that we are going to be incinerated by our fear. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, fine, throw us in. Because we know that God alone is worthy. That only God is worthy of our worship. Throw us in, that's fine. So they're thrown in. And in 326, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a part of them was singed by the fire. You see, we have a God who is bigger than. There's nothing special about these three guys, but these three guys knew that God alone could protect them, that God alone would stand beside them in the midst of the fire. As they look into the fiery furnace, they see four figures standing in the fire. They're like, we only threw three people in. Who would the fourth person be? Well, you can just imagine. What fire is going on in your life right now? What are you walking into? And can you trust that God will be with you in the midst of it? That God will not abandon you? That it might feel like it is going to burn you up? But God will be present. Well, Nebuchadnezzar goes out of power. And in comes a king by the name of Darius. And Darius respects Daniel. Daniel has made his way up the ranks. He's well respected because he's been able to interpret dreams. He's worked hand in hand with King Nebuchadnezzar. But there are people who are jealous of Daniel. And so they, they con Darius into issuing a law that, that everybody must bow down and worship the king. That the king alone should be worshipped. They know full well by now that Daniel is a Jewish man who only worships God. And so they know that Daniel is going to get himself into trouble. My favorite verse in all of the Daniel story is Daniel 6 verse 10. Daniel 6 verse 10 Daniel had just learned that for 30 days, for 30 days you must only worship the king. So Daniel hears that it's punishable by death and in chapter 6 verse 10, check this out, this is one of the coolest things you'll read. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its window open towards Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he always had done. 
giving thanks to his God. I mean, that's the story right there. That's the story of Daniel right there. Facing certain death, it says, he finds it out, and just as usual, nothing has changed for Daniel. Nothing has changed for Daniel. He knows that he's going to get punished for it, but he says, live or die, I'm with God. Whether I go now or whether I go later on, I am with God. And there is nothing that is going to deviate me from following God. There is nothing in this world that will cause me to stray away from the God who created me. So just as usual, Daniel goes up to his room, he opens his window, he faces the holy city, and he prays. Three times a day, he prays just as he always had done. You see, Daniel is a man who is created in the image of God. The fear of the Lord was in Daniel, the healthy fear. The fear that causes you to know that your parent loves you. You fear your parent because you know that no matter what you do, your parent will be by your side. The fear we have in God is not a fear because we're scared that God will punish us. No, we fear God because we know God is awesome, powerful, reverent, sovereign, everything we could ever dream of we find in God and we fear Him because we know that God knows us better than we know ourselves. And Daniel, regardless of the situation he finds himself in, he knows that there is nothing that he will do to deviate from his worship of God alone. And so just as usual, he goes up and he prays and the men point this out to King Darius. They say, Darius... Darius, your, your, your servant Daniel is praying, praying to his God. You're going to have to do something about it. And Darius loves Daniel. Darius tries to convince Daniel not to do this. But because of the law, he tells Daniel, Daniel, sorry. Daniel, sorry, you're going in to the lion's den. And may your God be with you. May your God save you. It says that King Darius couldn't sleep the entire night. He laid awake wondering if Daniel was going to be okay. So early the next morning, the king wakes up and he rushes out to the lion's den. And I love this. He shouts out, Daniel, Daniel, are you okay? Daniel doesn't respond. Oh, thank goodness, king, you're back. Let me out. Daniel responds, long live the king. Darius, are you okay? I'm fine. I'm here with God. There's, uh, there's nothing that could go wrong. But are you okay? Have you worried all night? Long live the king. May you have the security in God that I have. May you know your identity in God the way I know Darius. Darius, will you follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, the God of the Old Testament, the God who came incarnate in Jesus Christ, the God who went to the cross to save us from our sin, the very God that went to death to give us life. That is the God that we worship. And we live lives so often defined by fear, but we live lives where we are walked alongside of, where we are indwelled, where we are soaked with the Spirit of God, that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the, the love of God that comes through Christ Jesus. 
in John 10, John writes these words. John 10, 27 says, My sheep listen to, to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my Father, for my Father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. Jesus says, I have come to give you life. I have come to put my spirit in you. I have come to give my joy to you. I have come to let you know that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate me from, your, from my love. Jesus says, you are mine. You are my sheep and you know my voice and I have come for you. What is your fear today? Has it been loneliness? The loss of a relationship? The fear of losing a job? The fear of making the next payment? Fear of not being accepted. The fear of having to speak the truth to someone. You see, there's nothing heroic about Daniel. But there's everything heroic about this God that we serve. There's everything heroic about this God. This God who loved us so much. Who loved us so much that he didn't sit back and and look at us from a distance, but no, he entered into this world. He came incarnate. He came in flesh. He entered into our suffering. Philippians 2 said he came, even though he was equivalent of God, he came and humbled himself in the form of a slave, taking on flesh, suffering death on a cross, that we all may share the riches of heaven with him. Do you know that God? Do you know that God and are you willing to trust that God? Because there is nothing that Jesus Christ would not do to give you peace, to give you life, to give you joy, to give you hope, to take your fear, to give you a name, to give you an identity. So that you may know. So that you may know you know. That you are his. Let's pray.